Brothers and sisters, how precious are the faculties that God has given us by which we are put in touch with the physical world around us. He's given us our sight. He's given us hearing. He's given us the sense of smell and the sense of taste and the sense of touch. What a painful trial it is if we were to lose or to be without any one of those physical senses. We all know people, and it might include you, who have lost their sense of smell and taste as a result of COVID. This afternoon, we're going to pray for our sister Emily, who with her family has moved to Mississippi and since December has not been able to taste or smell, and she is now pregnant. And not only that, but her food actually smells and tastes rancid, and she has been unable to eat, and it has jeopardized her health and the health of the baby within her. We're going to pray for her. That's, a, that's an awful trial, to lose your sense of taste and smell. But I don't know if you would agree with me, but for me, the worst faculty to lose or not have would be the faculty of seeing, not being able to see with our eyes. Well, today, we're going to see the compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ extended to a blind man for whom Jesus restores his vision. But he does it in a very unusual and we might even say unique way. I ask you to turn your Bibles once again to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, and I'll read what is our text for this morning, 22 to 26, Mark, chapter 8, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, second Gospel, verses 22 to 26. It reads like this, and they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again, he laid his hands on his eyes and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Friends, at one point in our Lord's ministry, Jesus said to the unbelieving Jews around him, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are they that bear witness of me. And when the resurrected Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus, he was talking to two men who didn't recognize him at first. And he said to them, and beginning with, it says, in beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. The Old Testament scriptures, as we call them, are all about Jesus. Multiple predictions about Jesus, the Christ. And so in Jesus coming, he fulfills the promises and predictions of the Old Testament. And that includes his miracles. The miracle we see this morning and all of Jesus' miracles were prophesied and predicted in the Old Testament. And so as we view this miracle, there's a backward look to the prophecies that predicted it. But Jesus' coming does not only involve a backward look to the prophecies that predicted him, but in Jesus' coming, we have a forward look. Because Jesus came not only to fulfill from the past, he came to inaugurate something new. He came to bring a new covenant. He came to bring the kingdom of God in a new way to earth. 
So as we study this miracle that of healing a blind man this morning, I want us to see that this is not simply a blip on the screen of history. It's not only an event that was significant for the man who was healed, and wow, it was significant for him. Imagine not being able to see and then having perfect sight. What a dramatic change. What a momentous event for him. And it was significant for him, and we want to focus on, on that human drama of Jesus making this man to see. But I also want us to see the bigger picture that is involved in this and every miracle of healing. And so we're going to look at both the personal dimension, and then we're going to look at the bigger picture perspective, what I'm calling the redemptive historical dimension. I think you'll see what I mean as we get into it. I want to see three things from this account. There's a miraculous healing. A man is healed of his blindness. There's a gradual revealing. You notice that the man is not healed at once, but in stages. And then there's a self-concealing. Jesus doesn't tell the man to go out and witness, but go home. And that's curious. Let's consider first, there's a miraculous healing. And let's look at it from a personal dimension, what it meant for that particular man. This was an actual historical event. This was a, a man who actually lived in history. We'll probably meet him in heaven someday. Jesus and his disciples had crossed the sea. They came to Bethsaida. There are two Bethsaidas. This was on the northeast of the Sea of Galilee called Bethsaida Julius. It was named for the daughter of the Emperor Augustus. It had become a, a great city, but at this time, perhaps it was only a village. And when Jesus arrives at this village, a blind man is brought to him that he might cure him of his blindness. And as is so typical of our Lord Jesus, he graciously obliges and he extends his power to give this man back his sight. What's the significance of this miracle of healing? What was its significance for this man? Why did Jesus do this for this man? Well, on a personal level, we can say what motivated Jesus to heal this blind man was what always motivated Jesus in all of his healings and works of mercy. In Mark 1.41, it says, Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. In Mark 6.34, And he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. In Mark 8, 2, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days. What motivated all of Jesus' miracles of healing, all of his feedings? It was his great compassion. We can't miss, as we study the Gospels, the great compassionate heart of Jesus Christ. Although it doesn't say it here, we can safely extrapolate that the reason he healed this blind man was he was moved with pity for a man who was without his sight. Not part of God's original intention for man, but the result of the fall, the result of sin, the result of Satan. And moved with compassion, Jesus healed this man. That's the personal dimension. But is there a bigger picture? I think there is, the redemptive historical dimension. The healing of this blind man had greater significance than just an isolated act of compassion for this man. First, note the similarity between this miracle and the miracle we saw in chapter 7 when Jesus healed a deaf and dumb man, man who couldn't speak and couldn't hear. In 732, it says, they brought to him one who was deaf and who spoke with difficulty. Now they're bringing him a blind man. 
In 7.33, it says, after spitting, he touched his tongue with saliva. Here, Jesus spits on the man's eyes. You see the parallel? He spits and touches his ears. He spits on his eyes. In verse 7, chapter 7.37, it says, he makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Here, he makes the blind to see. Is there any further significance than just an act of compassion? Well, yes, there is. If you care to turn with me or just listen, I'm going to read from Matthew 11, 2 to 6. John the Baptist is in prison, and under the pressure of that imprisonment, no doubt under the attack of the devil, he's doubting. He has doubts about Jesus. And it says in Matthew 11, 2 and following, Now when John, while in prison, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? In other words, are you the Messiah? Are you the anointed one, the one who was prophesied in the Old Testament to come? Jesus answered and said to him, to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. What Jesus is saying, John, don't fear. I am the Messiah. I am the one predicted in the Old Testament. And the evidence is I'm doing the things that Messiah is supposed to do. I'm opening the ears of deaf people. I'm curing the blind. Where did he get that from? Jesus was citing Isaiah 35, 4 to 6, which says this. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then, talking about a future day, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Jesus, you see, is citing that prediction, that prophecy about the Messiah and saying, you're seeing me do what the prophet says the Messiah will do. I'm curing the blind and I'm curing the deaf. So what is the significance of this miraculous healing? It was a show of compassion for this particular man, but it was also a sign, a proof that Jesus was the Messiah. He is the coming Redeemer. And this is made more clear when we look at the context of this miracle. You see, just before this, and we saw this last time in our study, the disciples are, are still being dull of hearing. They don't get who Jesus is. And he says in Mark 8, 21, do you not yet understand? And yet, right after this passage, which we'll consider God willing next week, Peter makes the great confession in verse 29 when Jesus says, who are you? You are the Christ. And so we see that at one point the disciples aren't getting it. And then at, certain, at a certain point, it dawns on them, you're the Christ. They're kind of blind, and then they see. And right in the middle, Mark puts between those two bookends this miracle of this man physically coming to see. He didn't see, now he sees. But here's a question. Will the Messiah, Jesus, who was predicted to heal the blind and the deaf, will he only open physically blind eyes? Well, if you come back with me to Isaiah 35, which Jesus quotes for John the Baptist, John, I am the right man because I'm healing the blind and healing the deaf. I am the Messiah. I am the promised one. 
we read that, but picking up at verse 6, verse 7, the scorched land will become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, its resting place, grass becomes reeds and rushes. A highway will be there, a, a roadway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way, and fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go up on it. These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. You see, in the same prophecy that predicts that this Messiah will come and heal blind eyes and deaf ears, it goes on beyond that to say that his work is not just a work of physical healing. There is a work of spiritual healing going on here. The language is the highway of holiness, the redeemed, the ransomed, everlasting joy. That's not just physical healing. The healing of this blind man points backward to the fact that it was predicted, but it points forward to the fact that Jesus came to do more than just heal physical eyes and to heal physically deaf ears. And this is confirmed if you look at another prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah 42, 6 and 7. Listen to this. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. It's God, Yahweh, speaking to his servant who is the Messiah. It's one of the servant songs. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon. We sang about that. And those who dwell in darkness from the prison. You hear what I'm saying? This healing of the blind man was an act of compassion for this particular man and all what it meant to him. But it has a bigger in significance, a redemptive historical significance. It points backward and is evidence that Jesus is the Messiah because it was prophesied of him, but it also points forward to the greater work that he would do in not healing physically blind eyes, but healing spiritually blind eyes. The light that is spoken of here, that Jesus will be to the Gentiles, is the light of the gospel. And what is the blindness? It is spiritual blindness. And so this miracle of healing a blind man fulfills Old Testament prophecies, but it's also a foretaste of what the Messiah's greater work will be, and that is to heal spiritual blindness. And friends, why is that needed? It is needed because we are all born spiritually blind. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, if our gospel is hid, it is hid to those who are lost in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. We read in Ephesians 5, you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. In Colossians 1, it says he's delivered you from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. We are all born spiritually blind. What does that mean? What does it mean to be spiritually blind? Well, I'm going to mention three things. It means being unable to recognize the holiness and glory of God and his law. Unable to see the glory of God, the unapproachable holiness of God, and the holiness of God's law. Spiritual blindness also means 
you are unable to recognize the wretchedness of your sinful condition. Before he was converted, the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Oh, when it comes to the law of God, I've done it. He could check every box, obeyed that, followed that, observed that. I'm good with the law. I'm a law keeper. I'm a good guy. As to righteousness under the law, he saw himself as blameless. And to be spiritually blind means you're unable to see Jesus Christ as the only and all-sufficient Savior. If our gospel is hid, it is hid to those who are lost and whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who don't believe, lest the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ should shine unto them. I mean, if you don't see yourself as desperately lost and wretched, why do you need a Savior? And so you don't esteem Jesus very highly. But what happens when God opens our spiritual eyes and gives us spiritual sight? When, as, as Wesley beautifully puts it, thine eye diffused a quickening ray, I woke the dungeon flame with light. Your, your eye sent forth a life-giving ray into my dungeon in darkness, and I woke, and the dungeon flamed with light, and I went forth to follow him. What happens when that happens? Well, you come to see the glory of God and the glory of God's law. Like Isaiah, when he saw that vision of God in Isaiah 6, high and lifted up, he saw the transcendent, unapproachable glory and magnificence of God. You see God as not just, yeah, God, and, you know, he's got some commands, but you see God in all his unapproachable holiness and glory. Secondly, when God opens your eyes, you come to see the wretched sinfulness of your own heart. Like Isaiah, when he had a clear view of God, he said, I'm, I'm, I'm undone. I'm filthy. I'm a man with a filthy mouth, and I dwell among people as a filthy mouth. Before, you're thinking, I'm a pretty good guy. I mean, compared to other people, I'm not a criminal. I'm a good person. But when God opens your eyes, you look at yourself, and you say, I am wretched. I am filthy compared to the holiness of God. And then when God opens your eyes, you come to see Jesus as the only but all-sufficient remedy for your sin. Again, 2 Corinthians 4 for God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. When God opens your eyes, Jesus Christ is not just a good man, a nice person, a good teacher. He becomes the very glory of God to you and the one you desperately need to save your soul. So I ask you, are you following me? Jesus heals a blind man. It has a backward look. He fulfills the promises. This is what the Messiah will do. But that same prophecy points to the fact that he will not only open physical eyes, but he will be a light to the nations to open the spiritual eyes of people. And we need that because we're all blind. And so I ask you, has this happened to you? As you sit here this morning, are you spiritually blind or are you spiritually seeing? There are only two choices. There are only two classes of humanity. Some people, some of you sit in the light you walk in the light, and according to Ephesians 5, you are light in the Lord. Isn't that amazing? You're not just in the light, you are light in the Lord. And then others of you, or others, perhaps some of you, sit in darkness, and you walk in darkness, and you are darkness. We were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. How can you tell what is true of you? Well, you can ask yourself these questions. How do I view God and his law? Have you come to see God as unapproachably holy and his law as 
high and holy, what he demands of you morally and ethically, a high standard, too high for you to keep. How do you view yourself? Do you see yourself as not a good person, but one whose heart is naturally hostile to God, rebellious against God, one who is bent on doing your own thing and seeking your own pleasure for your own glory? If you see yourself as one who, I'm not good. I have nothing to commend myself to a holy God. And how do you view Christ? Have you come to see the unique glory of Jesus Christ? Have you come to see, as the parable says, that Jesus is the pearl of great price? If I get anything else in this world, I must get Jesus. Because he is my ticket to heaven. He is the only way I can be forgiven. Well, if these things are true, yes, God is high and holy. God's law is undoable. And I am a wretched sinner falling short of the glory of God. And Jesus is the only one who can save me. Well, guess what? Then you have received the sight-giving touch of Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit. Because unless one is born again, born of the Spirit, Jesus said he cannot see the kingdom of God. And if that's true of you, you have received a greater miracle than this blind man receiving his sight. What a precious thing for this man. I can't imagine being blind. But imagine all of a sudden being able to see. What a glorious blessing. But if you have had your spiritual eyes open, you have received a miracle and a gift far greater than the restoration of this man's physical sight. Praise God for that. But perhaps someone answers those questions in the negative. You don't see God as fearfully holy and perfect. In fact, you might even say, well, I'm not sure there even is a God. And if it is the God of the Bible, I mean, I, I, I'm good enough to, to live with him. I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm not perfect, but... You know, I, I've done enough good things uh, to, to live with God. I, I've got it covered. God is not so holy. And suppose you don't see yourself as utterly lost and under the wrath of a holy God. And suppose you don't see Jesus as the very glory of God, the, the one you desperately need to save you. Yeah, Jesus, Jesus, he seems to be a good man. He was a good teacher. He's a good guide. But you don't see the glory of God in the face of Christ. If you answer that way, then, my friend, you are still lost in your sin. You are still spiritually blind, and you need to cry to God, open my spiritual eyes to see the things that I need to see for my eternal salvation. Because unless God opens your eyes, you may have all of your physical faculties working perfectly to the day of your death. You will be spiritually blind, and you will go into a dark and Christless eternity. So cry to God, if that's the case, that he would help you to see. But then we move from the miraculous healing to what I'm calling a gradual revealing. You know, this is the only healing of Jesus that he does in stages. Every other miracle is instantaneous, right? He heals right away, full restoration. Here, he heals in stages. At first, the man sees men as trees walking. Then, with another touch, he sees perfectly. Well, consider the, the personal dimension. Even as it was the compassion of Jesus that would have motivated him to heal this blind man, I want you to see that Jesus has a very personal, individualized approach in his dealings with people. There's nothing mechanical and nothing perfunctory about the way Jesus dealt with people. All of his interactions were filled with the personal, individual caring and concern 
that we might expect from perfect humanity. And so looking at the text, it says in verse 23, taking the blind man by the hand. Now this man needed guides. Certain, he couldn't see. He couldn't navigate. And so certain ones were his guide, and they had taken him by the hand to Jesus. When he gets to Jesus, Jesus takes him by the hand as if to say, I'm going to lead you now. I'm going to be your guide now. And so the first exposure the blind man has to Jesus is that he takes hold of his hand to guide him. And he doesn't hear a voice saying, oh, follow me or, or bring him here. He feels the warm, firm hand of Jesus grasping his own hand to lead him in his blindness. And then it says he brought him out of the village. There may have been several reasons for that. But as with the man who was deaf and dumb, it was probably in this man's best interest. Remember we said about the man who couldn't hear? He couldn't hear. He would have seen all this uh, commotion around him, but not being able to hear anything. It would have been confusing to him. And now here's a blind man. Um, did I say that right? He would have seen all that commotion, but he wouldn't be able to hear anything. Here, the blind man would be able to hear all this commotion going around and around him, but he wouldn't be able to see anything. And so Jesus, out of sensitivity to this man, takes him out of the village. He walks him out to where he can be in a calm, quiet setting where Jesus can give him personal attention and the man can calmly focus on what is happening to him without the sounds of the rabble around him and he can concentrate on who it is that was doing that for him. And imagine that walk out of the village would have heightened his anticipation. What is this man going to do for me? And then he spits on the man's eyes. Why? Spittle was believed in that day to have healing powers. It wasn't the power of the spit that healed the man. Jesus healed by touch. He healed by word. He healed at a distance. It was always the will of Jesus that healed people because Jesus is God. It wasn't the, the means he used. It wasn't the spit that healed the man. But why did Jesus spit on his eyes? Well, again, out of a sensitive accommodation to the man. The man couldn't see what was happening, but he did have the sensation of touch, and he could feel the spittle on his eyes. And so Jesus is, is drawing near to this man, saying, I'm going to do something for your eyes. Perhaps the man's eyes were gummed up and shut from dried secretions. And Jesus' spittle would have been announcing their opening. Then again, he laid his hands on his eyes. He's making physical connection with this man who couldn't see, but he could feel touch. And then he asked the question, do you see anything? And the man replies in verse 24, do you see anything? And he says, he looked up and said, I see men and I see them like trees walking around. Jesus didn't ask the question because he wanted to know, is my miracle working? When men were helping me in the renovation of our kitchen, my, my dear, generous neighbor, retired man, worked for more than 40 hours helping me. No, I was helping him do the electrical work. I know nothing about electrical work. And so he would do something that I totally didn't understand, all these wires, and he was understanding it. And he'd do something, and he'd say, go downstairs. That was my job, to go downstairs and flip the breaker. That's all I could do. And I'd flip the breaker and I'd say, is it on? And he'd say, no. And there's some other problem which he would eventually solve. Or, yeah, we've got light. 
Jesus wasn't asking, is this, is this working? <laughs> that wasn't the reason for the question. Why did he say, uh, are you seeing anything? Because he wanted to engage the man, to involve the man in this process and to raise his hope that something's being done for you here. And at first he sees fuzzily in the anticipation that whoever this is, he's helping me. I never even saw anything before. Now I'm seeing men in trees walking and there's a likelihood that I'll be able to see perfectly. And soon after that, that did happen. It says, um, looking intently, looking, look fixedly, straining to see, and he was made to see perfectly. Friends, what we're learning from this is Jesus, he healed many people, but he didn't, never did it in an assembly line way. He never did it in an impersonal way. Yeah, you're healed, next, you're healed, next, you're healed, next. Je can you see that Jesus' approach is very individualized? It's very personal. He's a personal savior. He calls his sheep by name and he deals very personally and sensitively with every individual. What do we learn from that? Well, I think you can say that that's how Jesus deals with you. He's not dealing with you as just a number. He's very personal. Whatever he's doing in your life and mine, it's very personalized. It's tailored for us for our good because Jesus, though he has a multitude, an, an innumerable multitude of sheep, because he's God, he gives very personal attention to each one of his sheep. It's as though you were his only sheep. And he's tailoring everything in your life and mine for our good. Very personal in all of his dealings with his people. And it also teaches us, as Jesus related, not mechanically and not coldly to people, that's how we need to relate to other people. We're living in a very depersonalized age. Social media has tremendous benefits, but it is alienating people, isn't it? And we, we have all this means of electronic communication. Who wants to listen to a voice message? People say, I don't check my voice messages. Give them a text, give them an email. And we're losing the spoken voice. We're losing the face-to-face. -face. As Christians, we need to hold the line and say, I'm going to utilize social media to the advantage of the gospel, but I'm not going to lose the personal touch, the face-to-face, -face, the voice. And if we're going to imitate Jesus, we need to relate personally and warmly to people and not coldly and mechanically. And so we need to see the benefits of social media, and we also need to see the liabilities. And if anybody's going to stand against it, it needs to be us. But let's consider this gradual revealing from the big picture perspective, the redemptive historical dimension. This miracle of healing was certainly for the man who received his sight. That was a worthy end in itself, just another good deed done by Jesus who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, as Peter says in the house of Cornelius. But in another sense, this miracle and even the gradual nature of it had another purpose. It was for the disciples. Back in chapter 8, verse 18, the previous incident, Jesus warns of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod, and all these guys could think about was physical bread. And Jesus rebukes them. Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not yet see? The previous incident, he's accusing them of not seeing. 
Sinclair Ferguson says this, was this miracle then like others a sign? Yes, but to whom? To the man? No, to the disciples. And this is confirmed by the fact that Jesus had already asked them about their vision of him. He was now leading them by the hand to, to the point at which their sight would become much clearer. And Peter would confess in verse 29, which follows, you are the Christ. Their spiritual, here's the point. Their spiritual understanding did not come instantaneously, but gradually. The lesson for the disciples was this. Only as Jesus keeps on opening your eyes to him, will you see him more clearly. They did have some spiritual vision, but it needed to be healed and sharpened. That would be an ongoing process in their lives as Jesus continued to perfect what he had begun, close quote. You see, what he's saying is the gradual healing had a bigger picture purpose. It was a sign to the disciples. You guys are like this. You see some things, but you don't see as you ought to see. Haven't we seen over and over again that they don't get it? They don't understand? Well, in verse 29, Peter finally gets it. You're the Christ. And so it's a picture of their gradual spiritual sight. It's, it's, it's coming. They're seeing Jesus as fuzzily. Then they come to see him with greater clarity. But beyond the immediate 12 disciples, does not this gradual healing and gradual revelation of himself to this man illustrate the manner in which people come to him in general? Matthew Henry says, thus Christ should show, and in what method, those are healed by his grace who by nature are spiritually blind. J.C. Ryle says, let us see then in this gradual restoration to sight a vivid illustration of the manner in which the Spirit frequently works in the conversion of souls. So even as this man gradually received his sight, I think we can say there's a parallel here to the way people come to gain spiritual sight. It's a gradual process. Consider, here's a person who thinks very little about their never-dying soul. They never ask the important questions. If they're just skimming through life, enjoying life in this physical, material world, horizontally, no thought of God, no thought of eternity. And then a crisis comes to their life. A loved one dies. They have a near-death experience, a serious broken relationship, maybe a broken engagement, which really, really troubles them. Or maybe they commit some really big sin that explodes in their conscience. And all of a sudden, they begin to think, wait a minute, who am I? Why am I here? What's going to happen to me when I die? And they begin to pursue different answers. Maybe they go down the track of a particular religion or philosophy, but they're finding no answers. Or maybe they say, you only go around once in life, I'm just going to indulge myself in pleasure and they find what Solomon found in the book of Ecclesiastes. It wasn't satisfying. It's all vanity. But then they're introduced somehow to the God of the Bible and to Jesus and the gospel, maybe through Christian friends. And they begin coming to church. Or maybe they begin to read their Bible. And they begin to have this sight of Jesus. And the more they see of Jesus, the more they see themselves by comparison. Boy, I'm really unclean and filthy compared to Jesus. And they learn more about Jesus by coming to church, by reading their Bible. And eventually, the heart of the gospel begins to make sense. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. And they put their faith in Christ and are saved. 
but it's a gradual process. Wasn't it so with you? It was a process. And so as this man's physical sight was restored progressively, we see spiritually progressively. And I think the gradual process also illustrates the process of sanctification. Sanctification is a process. When we're converted, we're not immediately perfected in holiness. And that's why Jesus said in John 17, 17, Father, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. That's why Paul could say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling as God works in you. That's why Peter could say at the end of his second letter, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, as we behold the Lord, we grow, we go from glory to glory. The more we behold of Jesus, the more like him we become from one level of brightness to another. So even our sanctification, especially our sanctification, is a process, isn't it? What does that mean for us? If you're a Christian, you're engaged in that process. Hebrews 12, 14 says, pursue peace and the sanctification without which no man will see the Lord. That word pursue is the word sometimes translated persecute. As someone would persecute, we need to pursue sanctification aggressively. That's your goal as a Christian now. You're saved, you're redeemed, you're justified, you're forgiven. Now you need to pursue greater likeness to Jesus Christ. Pursue it avidly. It means we ought to encourage one another to love and good deeds and to spur one another on in our sanctification. It also means we need to be patient with one another, doesn't it? None of us is a finished product. We need to be patient with one another as God is patient with us in the process of sanctification. But then, you know, the experience of this blind man coming to see gradually also illustrates our glorification. It is pointed out that, in one sense, this whole life is like seeing men as trees walking. Remember how Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, we, we see in a mirror dimly. This whole life is a partial sight. And only when we're perfected at the moment of our death or when Christ returns will we see with perfect clarity. So in a sense, this whole life is a matter of seeing men as trees walking. But one day we will see with crystal clarity, and we need to look forward to that day when the fog of sin is removed and we see our Lord and we see his glory with crystal clarity. Well, one final point needs to be made, and it's very brief. Not only do we have in this text a miraculous healing of this blind man, a gradual revealing. I see men as trees walking, then he saw perfectly. But we have what I'm calling a self-concealing. The final verse, verse 26, he heals the blind man and he sends him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Why did he do that? Well, again, from a personal standpoint, it was probably out of sensitivity to this man. Rather than sending him into the crowd where he would be barraged with all kinds of questions, perhaps Jesus knew that it was in his best interest to send him back to his home where he could quietly, calmly reflect on what had happened to him and on who had done this for him. And so there was probably a personal dimension. It was for his best interest. But there's also a redemptive historical dimension. William Hendrickson says, it was not the purpose of Christ's coming to create excitement and encourage false expectations of approaching political deliverance. 
many people had a wrong idea about the Messiah in that day. They thought he was going to come as a political Messiah to crush the Romans and set them free politically. Jesus didn't come as that kind of Messiah, did he? He was coming as a suffering servant. He would have to go through the valley of humiliation before he would ascend the Mount of Glory. And so perhaps it was to keep people from clamoring to make him a king. Any man who can do this, he can surely conquer the Romans. And that might have been the bigger picture reason why Jesus said, go to your home. Don't go to the village. But friends, we're not living under that charge to not enter the village. We're living under the Great Commission, where God wants us to go into every village, every city, every home, every nation, and tell, tell people the good news of Jesus Christ, because he is the only way to God. He is the only way to be forgiven. He is the only mediator between God and man. He's the only Savior to forgive you, and the world around us is lost. So that man had the commission. Don't go out into the public and shout it from the rooftop. You go home. But for us, he says, go into the highways and byways, go into the villages and cities and homes, and tell everybody you can the good news about Jesus, because without him, they are lost. Let's pray, and then we'll turn to song number 10, Behold the Lamb. Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you for what it teaches us about you, Lord Jesus, how personal and caring you are in your treatment of everyone with whom you interact. And thank you for the big picture lessons we learn about your grand redemptive plan of salvation. Help us to take these things to heart and practice what you want us to practice from this passage. We pray in Jesus' name. 